Well, tonight I'd like to talk about the factor of investigation. Sounds awful loud. Is it okay? Okay. Okay. So one of my earliest retreats was a monastic retreat with Ajahn Amaro up at uh, Santa, Santa Rosa somewhere. And one of the beautiful things about that retreat was that we did chanting in Pali the first thing every morning and in the evening. And that's where I learned the Pali for two words that really are two of the most inspiring descriptions of the Dharma for me. The words ehipasiko and opanaiko. I don't know if you know these words, but ehipasiko means inviting all to come and see for themselves. And opanaiko means inward leading or to be brought inward. So investigation is the aspect of my practice, at least, where these words really come to life. The term investigation is more accurately translated as something like the discrimination of phenomena, or I also like the word discernment. The dictionary definition of discern is to recognize as distinct, or to distinguish or separate mentally, to perceive the difference between things, to recognize or perceive distinctly, or to make out by looking. So this is really what we're trying to do with our mindfulness practice. And investigation is one of the seven factors of awakening. These factors are inherent capabilities of our minds that need to be developed and balanced in order to provide a fertile ground for wisdom or insight to arise. The whole list of factors are mindfulness, investigation, effort or energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. So this list can be understood from a couple of different perspectives. First of all, as a progressive sequence of factors where each one develops on the basis of the previous ones and contributes to the development of the next ones. This is part of the inward leading quality of the Dharma. As you practice, these factors develop and strengthen each other to some degree sequentially. Um, It can also be seen as a list of factors that maintain a balance of energy and calm. The factors of investigation, effort, and joy are energizing factors, and tranquility, concentration, and equanimity are calming factors. Mindfulness itself is usually spoken of as the balancing factor between the two. It's interesting to me that this factor of investigation occurs in the list of factors of awakening right between mindfulness and effort or energy. It's a kind of bridge between the two. One of my teachers calls it the active side of mindfulness. You could also say that it's kind of the receptive side of wise effort. Effort and discernment are very interconnected factors actually. Wise effort is the effort to cultivate the wholesome or skillful and abandon the unwholesome or unskillful. But before we can do that, we need to be able to distinguish between the two and to know what is wise to do in order to make skillful effort. A story from the suttas that I like is a story of one day the Buddha was talking to his son, Rahula, and it's apparent that Rahula had probably told some sort of lie and the Buddha was admonishing him by asking him, Rahula, what do you think a mirror is for? And he said, for reflection, sir. Then the Buddha goes on to say that in the same way, bodily acts, verbal acts, and mental acts are to be done with repeated reflection. And he talks about the need to reflect before you do any kind of act on whether it would lead to self-affliction, 
to the affliction of others or the affliction of both. And then you need to reflect similarly while you're performing that act. And then having performed that act, you should look back on it and see in retrospect, has it caused any affliction to yourself or to anyone else or to others? So this can sound like a recipe for getting more and more uptight and self-conscious to me, examining every act that you're about to do or what you're doing or what you have done. But that would really be to take these instructions in a way that leads to more self-affliction, right? So once again, we also need discernment to give us the feedback we need to keep this effort balanced as being neither too tight or too loose. And usually, actually, the main thing that we need to do to correct imbalanced effort is simply to investigate more deeply. If the effort is too tight with too much striving, we can remind ourselves that all we really need to do is see clearly what's happening. We don't need to actually make anything happen. And when the effort is too loose, often the most useful thing to do is to try to discriminate more precisely exactly what we are seeing. When the truth is seen, the mind and body naturally move in ways that let go of clinging, and this frees up more energy that fuels the practice in a forward-moving spiral. So there's an active, effortful side to investigation, which is inquiring into what's happening with more precision and specificity, and directing the attention to more and more subtle forms of suffering, dissatisfaction, tension, stress, clinging, fixation, attachment, aversion. And there's a more receptive and effortless side of investigation, which is really exploring without any agenda and allowing whatever's happening to unfold in its natural course in the light of awareness. Trusting that our minds in a deep way really want to be free and that letting go will happen naturally if we can see how we're hanging on. Over my years of practice, I often find myself struggling between trying too hard to get concentrated or be mindful and just spacing out, or between wanting to relax but not wanting to just fall into acting out old habits, struggling between wanting to progress in the practice to see what I need to see in order to be free from suffering without falling into theorizing about the Dharma too much or excessively striving to try to make certain insights happen. The key to resolving both of these extremes for me and what can turn me away from either the striving or the spacing out is to arouse genuine interest in what's really happening. So investigation is really the leverage point where effort can be most wisely applied in a way that seems to stimulate interest. And once interest really kicks in, then the continuity of the practice becomes much stronger. So the factor of effort begins to seem less like something we're trying really hard to do and more like the natural presence of energy to fuel our practice. Mind actually seems to take a natural delight in knowing and perceiving clearly, regardless of what it is seeing. Through balanced effort informed by a clear discernment, the factor of joy or rapture begins to arise. This is a kind of rapt attention or sometimes called joyful interest. So let's look a little more about investigation. What is it exactly? The English word investigation can be so misleading. It sounds as if there's going to be an answer, you know, like seeking to find something like a mystery novel or some popular psychology that would encourage you to trace back blame for something that's happened to you. 
So for a long time in my practice, I would often get trapped in what seemed like investigation. But in my case, it was really more of an attempt to find an intellectual shortcut to the whole process, to sort of figure out what this meditation business was about so that I could do it more easily. There's a, a section in a wonderful recent book of Tan Jeffs, if you know him. He's a Theravadan monk who often comes here. And when I read this, it just tickled me so much. I hope I can find the first page of it. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is from his book called Meditations. He says, We'd like to think that if we had it all figured out, we wouldn't have to pay so much attention. That if, if, if there were some formula we could memorize, that in itself would take care of things, so we wouldn't have to put so much effort into the meditation, put so much effort into being present. We'd like to just plug in the formula and let things go on automatic pilot. He says, if you're looking for little formulas or the little nuggets of wisdom that you can wrap up and take home in hopes that they'll allow you to drop the effort that goes into being so attentive, it's like the old story of the goose laying the golden egg. You get a golden egg and then you kill the goose. That's the end of the eggs. The goose here is the ability to stay attentive, to be present, to be fully engaged in what's happening with the breath. The insights will come on their own. You need to keep producing, producing, producing the insights, not for the sake of taking them home with you, but for the sake of using them right here and right now. You don't have to be afraid that you're not going to remember them for the next time. If you're really attentive, your sensitivity will produce the fresh insights you need the next time. It will keep developing, becoming an ability to read things more and more carefully, more and more precisely, so that you won't have to memorize insights from the past. It will keep serving them up hot and fresh. So just I'd like to talk about a few ways in which investigation can sort of be a little off of exactly what's wise investigation. For example, the difference between judging what's going on and just seeing. I find myself often thinking that I'm investigating, but where's the unrecognized question in the background, what's really wrong with me? What's the matter with me? The trap of investigating to get rid of what's going on. So, you know, I'm having this knee pain. I know I'll investigate it to death, you know, and then it will go away. That's not exactly it. Um, Instead, you can just recognize that attitude. If you catch the attitude of judging, then you just recognize that that's what's happening and you begin to explore what that feels like. I've been able to really get a lot recently out of seeing how much I'm still judging thoughts that I'm ashamed of. So there's a very definitely a difference in energy of not identifying with a thought, crazy thought that comes up and just let it float away versus feeling that you somehow are ashamed of that and you need to suppress it. You can feel a definite difference in energy and the way you relate to something by how much you're really pushing it away from you and how much you're just letting it flow by, noticing it as it goes. There's a difference between what you could call spiritual ambition and greed versus true exploration. True exploration, you really don't know what you're going to find next. I had a chance recently to take a long drive across the southwest and I came home through Utah and I had no particular agenda or date I needed to get home. So I just drove all these little roads all over Utah, just following my nose. And I actually came across Gunnison National Park, which I'd never heard of. And I, I had no, I don't know if you've ever heard of this, but it's this fabulous canyon in Utah. And I didn't know there was a national park I'd never heard of. And I just stumbled onto it by driving down a road that I was following. And uh, actually on the same trip, I read a story about 
or a book about discovering the Grand Canyon and really how he was making the point that you really can't see it until you're right there. You know, it's not like a mountain where you can see far away. So people must originally have just been wandering around in this apparently flat area and then, whoa, suddenly when you're right there, there's the Grand Canyon. So you really never know what you're going to find if, you just, if you're just open to exploring what's happening. One of my early, earliest teachers told me one time, I went in on a meditation interview on retreat and I was really trying to see what was going on with the breath. You know, I thought there was something that I wasn't seeing about the breath and that if I just really got down with the breath, <laughs> I would find out the secret of life. You know, like, I don't know what I thought, but, but she was telling me, well, don't go in there with a pickaxe. Just, just notice very clearly what's, what is actually happening on the surface because if you're trying too hard to see beneath the surface, then all you're doing really is projecting your own ideas of what you think might be under there. So all you can really do is just exactly meet with your mindfulness. Just meet what's exactly really available to you and be as clear as you can about what that is. And then you may find that it's sort of like the fog burning off the morning sun, I mean the sun burning off the fog around here in the mornings. That just with, with the, the warmth of mindfulness eventually more and more detail will become available to you. It's like looking at a flower in more and more detail. You know, you take it and you say, oh, it's pink. And then you look, oh, it's pink with little orange stripes. And oh, in the little orange stripes, there are little dots of something. And you can just look more and more and more deeply. I've heard the mind compared to an electron microscope, although I haven't seen any electrons yet. But flowers are really incredible. Anything like that is just very interesting if you just look at what's there and let it reveal itself to you. It's actually meeting experience with the question in mind, what is this? What's really happening right now? Then knowing and discernment can actually happen effortlessly. There's a quality about it of listening, of allowing what's going to happen. I remember one time that I felt that I was was stuck in some kind of longing or wanting. And so I thought to myself, well, okay, I'm going to investigate this wanting. And so I was sort of noting to myself, oh, wanting, wanting, let me feel this wanting. And, and I was really sort of leading the witness, you know, with these questions about, tell me about this wanting. And, and then I finally relaxed back and, and a little quick visual image of a person drowning came across to me. And I realized, oh, this is not really wanting, it's fear. I mean, it's not hanging on in the sense of wanting, it's hanging on in the sense of hanging on to a lifeboat, you know. It's, it's this fear of drowning. And, so if I hadn't stepped back and just let that image arise from the unconscious, I really would have missed what that was from trying to have my own notion of what it was. So don't ask so many questions. Just listen and let your body tell its story in its own way. I find that it's really often a movement that's either, either in or back more versus out or forward. Let me try to explain that a little bit. I, if I'm, if I'm just right at the surface of what's happening, like with the breath and feeling the rising and falling to whatever degree is right there available to me, then the more I relax into it, the more it's a feeling of sinking in and having the attention sink in to more and more and more detail. On the other hand, I often find that I'm trying to pay attention to something, but there's really as if there's something bigger going on. And in that sense, I need to step back as a move in the direction of right investigation. So you sort of step back to take in the bigger picture and open up a little bit and ask, what's really going on here? You know, maybe I'm restless. Maybe I'm trying too hard to follow the breath when really there's a pain in my knee or really I'm sad, you know, and I'm, and I'm just trying to concentrate here thinking that will help me, but really I need to just open up to being sad. 
So sometimes it's in and sometimes it's kind of out and back. But it's not it's not out or forward in the sense of grasping too hard to, you know, force your way through something or to project your own ideas of what's happening onto the situation. So we might for example be trying to we might for example be trying to follow our breath and we just can't seem to stay with it for some reason. We're we're feeling a little bit and then we're not. So we do that backing out move and we ask what's really going on here and we find out, oh it's there's some anxiety going on here. So then you can maybe specifically just hold the question of, well, anxiety, anxiety, and try to feel it in the body. So go back and forth between feeling where, how do you know you're anxious in your body? And where in your body is there tension or, you know, gripping in the belly or something like that? And then maybe you might find some thoughts come up about what you're anxious about, and that's interesting to notice what thoughts come up, some images might come up. And then, you know, eventually you may stick with the anxiety or you may find that breathing begins to be available to you through the anxiety that you were following. And the more you stick with it, the more detail may emerge and you may begin to notice subtle vibrations that are both part of the anxiety and part of the breath and more thoughts come up. And so you're just really dancing with the whole experience that's unfolding for you at the time. It's like feeling our way in the dark without any preconceived ideas. One of my favorite poems is a very short little poem by Wendell Berry. It goes like this. To go in the dark with a light is to know the light. To know the dark, go dark, go without sight, and find that the dark too blooms and sings and is traveled by dark feet and dark wings. So what happens when we really are carefully mindful in a way that allows this kind of discernment to happen? I've often heard it said that mindfulness is like a solvent, that it dissolves clinging and tension. And this aspect of investigation or discernment is really the key to how this works. As we look closer and closer and discern more carefully, we see that things we have taken to be solid and unchanging, whether memories or ideas about ourselves and others, or experiences like pain or desire. These things can be seen to be composed of many smaller, ever-changing phenomena. So really all aspects of our mental and physical lives can be looked at in this way. Thought patterns, for example. How can we investigate our thinking? So for me, I think self-pity and resentment has always been a key theme in my thought patterns. And as I began to notice this over the years, one time I noticed, it just occurred to me that when I was sort of wallowing in self-pity, that there was always a sense of an audience there, that there was someone listening who was feeling sorry for me and taking my side and beating up whoever, you know, bully I wanted them to beat up. <laughs> and, uh, and, and this struck me as, sometime, one time this just struck me as so funny, because obviously it was just no fun to have a self-pity rant without picturing someone there taking your side. And so as I began to notice this, I began to notice it more and more every time. So just really, it only took one really clear seeing that that was happening to remind, somehow form the habit slowly of noticing that every time. And then by noticing that every time, it slowly began to sort of diffuse the self-pity and the resentment stories. So actually, this is, this is some reflection on this. It, it's led me to realize that I would... It was really a deep investigation of all the ways that I'm really still a child looking for a parent to come and 
and bail me out of various situations. So talking about, let's look at emotional reactions, how we investigate emotional reactions. Little story here is that I would often find phone calls with my mother starting out very pleasant and then somehow winding up stressful. I would just always feel like, oh, let's call mom, and I would call her up, and we'd talk for a while, and by the end of it, I was just always completely stressed. And finally, one time, I, I actually caught the moment physically in my body when I would hear her say something about how she wanted things to be for me, you know, like, honey, take your vitamins or something like that. And I would just feel myself tense up, and, and I realized I, I just caught it on that physical level of her saying something and me back. And, and I realized that I actually had the belief that I needed to do something about it. So somehow, seeing it more as I began to see it, that it was really more an expression of her sort of anxious love for me, and it really wasn't a command, and I'm an adult. And you know, just having recognized that, just the, the actual seeing of it so clearly right in the moment, of her saying it and attention, now I notice that every time, and it's gotten much milder, and I just feel much more compassion and less defensiveness when listening to her tell me all the things she wants me to do for my own good, no doubt. And uh, so... That's an example. Again, to me, it's so magical that it just one really clear seeing of the kind of, oh, look, that's how that arises. And then, then it's there, and somehow it's planted a little flag in your mind where you can see it next time. So another area that we need to investigate is beliefs. A belief is really kind of a, a fixation. I actually love discovering something that I believe because I think it's like finding a partition in the mind, blocking the view somehow. You know, if you, I like to investigate, really, what if it isn't true? So play with who you would be if you didn't believe that. So if you find a belief like that, you know, I could never go to graduate school or something like that, or I could never, no one will ever love me, or, you know, even some political belief or something like that, just play with the other side of it and play with, well, how would the world be if it weren't true? Or what, what are people who believe something else? How can they possibly, you know, try to really, as an exercise, working up a compassionate sort of sympathy with the people who might believe the opposite of you, just to see how they could still be reasonable people and believe the opposite of you. I really find that, I mean, that's not a mindfulness exercise. That's a very active kind of investigation for me that I enjoy and have got a lot out of. Um, I discovered in myself that a belief not too long ago that I actually seem to believe that being intellectually right is more important than practically everything in, in, a, in an argument with people. And so it, it was really shocking to see that, you know, would I rather be nice or right? Oh, you know, I'd rather be right. <laughs> no doubt about it. And, and so, you know, really recognizing that and seeing how, you know, hard that is when other people seem to feel that way and how painful that is and how much we, of course, create that together. And so... It really seemed that I actually believed this, and I, I have to admit that as far as I can tell, I still do, and it, it's very painful. But now that I know it, you know, I can try to see when I'm acting from that belief and when I'm actually, you know, coming from some place that really represents what I would think are my deeper values. So, it's a fascinating area of investigation. So another area is intentions. That's a very interesting area to inquire very explicitly. What is my intention in doing what I'm doing? Is it rooted in a wholesome quality like generosity or compassion, or is it more self-serving or aversive? One claim that I think Gil once pointed out to me is that we're always trying to do something that we think would unconsciously make us happy. 
So if you look back at your most unskillful things that you've done that you think of are the most ungenerous or something, if you investigate deeply into what seems like an unwholesome intention, you might actually discover that it's an unskillful attempt to get happiness. And then you can, again, you can turn that around and and try that out as an assumption about why other people are doing what they're doing. Another aspect of investigating intentions is to investigate what happens to our good intentions. So for 10 years now, I've had the intention certainly to sit every day, but I certainly don't. So I, I was recently, during a recent phase of not sitting, I was really looking carefully at why I didn't, although I had the intention to do it. And I, I would walk by the cushion in the morning and I, w- I would sort of see it and then I would, I would stop. And So I was really working on what happened to the intention here. And it, just by looking at the cushion as I walked by, I began to feel the actual momentum, the physical momentum carrying me out the door. And then I would stop, and so I wound up sort of stopping in the middle of the room, you know, kind of frozen, feeling the the intention pulling one way and the momentum pulling the other way. And and this is really how I I came to feel how much energy there is in my life to hurry up and to be busy and to get on with it or hunger for breakfast or restlessness or just really feel all the forces that are almost physically pulling me away from my good intentions. And I gradually got, you know, if you stand there long enough, you might as well sit down and so forth. It sort of kind of backed into it, so sometimes it helps. <laughs> so uh, I think really, that as I follow on to that story, I can say that the most transformative level to connect with is when you can connect with the real physical, energetic level of what's going on. Um, because that's ultimately where it has to get down to for where real change begins to happen. I find a lot of fun with this in the last few years. Actually, just... Um, just trying to relax my body with mindfulness, not not as a particularly passive kind of mindfulness, but an active exploration of where the tension is in my body, and just feeling, you know, I sometimes play with giving myself an awareness massage, like where would it, where would I feel good if somebody were giving me a massage, and just by imagining that point, then you imagine oh a little lower, a little lower, a little to the left, and just by kind of imagining that sort of direction, you can sort of give yourself a, a kind of an interesting workover as, with awareness and learn about where the tension is in your body and what parts are connected to what parts. And it's really fascinating. And it, for me, that inevitably brings up emotional connections and thoughts. And it's sort of a, a, a very purifying exercise that I recommend. So when we investigate like this, we often first come to a sort of intellectual understanding of what's going on and then it takes a very long time for that to percolate down from the intellect and really begin to transform our emotional responses and our body tensions. And as this process unfolds, we may begin to discover our blind spots or really something that's almost like black holes of mindfulness somehow. For me, um, one of these black holes has been food until really quite recently. I just I feel like I'm quite mindful, but for some reason uh, there's something about overeating that just isn't available to me yet to investigate. So it's interesting, and I keep working on it. But it, it's I don't have much to say about it besides you know well we all have those things. So just to tell you that it's very common to have some areas that just lag behind others in being amenable to mindfulness. Or there may be some aspect of our minds that we just take for granted. It's been around so long, it just completely colors our whole view of things. For many of us in the West, it's kind of a wallpaper attitude of unworthiness, of just basic, I don't know if this is really West or East, but the story is that this is something that's endemic in the modern world, that we feel a sense of unworthiness. 
a sense of lack of value and that's driving us to do all kinds of things to try to make some some feeling of value for ourselves or sometimes it may seem to you like there's an exception to what you others otherwise assume about the dharma so no not in this case you know i mean i can mindfully investigate all forms of greed and all forms of aversion but that person is really the problem you know or if i only had the right partner in life then all my problems would be solved and I know that so I'm not going to investigate myself out of that one and so you know all these things are just interesting things that you discover when you really start to thoroughly examine your life sometimes these things of course come all tied up together into what my teachers call psychophysical knots there might be some past traumatic experience in your childhood maybe that you weren't able to handle at the time and maybe or maybe it's just some inclination of our genetic personality who knows but something that's been rehearsed and repeated and built on for so long that it's a really deep and tangled set of habits and beliefs and thought patterns emotional responses physical contraction numbness all that can be just quite interesting to very slowly unwind it takes a lot of courage and compassion for ourselves and quite a eclectic mix of thinking and remembering and exploring the body and floating and hovering over our emotions and our feelings to begin to untangle these knots. You need to be very gentle with yourself, sort of think of it like taming a wild cat. You need to go in a little ways and back off. You know, you wouldn't you wouldn't go out and grab a wild cat. You would just leave a little food out and then leave a little more food out and you know, that that's sort of slowly approaching and then backing off. You need to go in a little ways then if it's something that's very threatening and scary to you or or just very unavailable to you very numb something you reestablish your groundedness in something that works for you like the breath or the feeling of being seated or a feeling of compassion or metta and then you gradually allow the attention to open up to the difficult feelings again as we explore our psychological history we can be seeing the conditioning can be valuable to see the conditioning by exploring our psychological history not so much to establish something like say blame for our parents or something as to see the impersonal nature of it oh yes you know they had parents too and they had parents and so forth and you know everyone is acting in a way out of a conditioned in a social environment and so it can be very interesting to understand that impersonally and then we're maybe able to re-experience memories if we've given ourselves a good platform in in calming mindfulness calming concentration breathing practice we can give ourselves a good platform where we can really open up to some situations or the memories of some situations that we couldn't handle as children but we have a lot more resources now and they can actually be paper tigers sometimes when we actually turn and look at them we see that you couldn't handle it as a 4-year-old but you can now as an adult and you just got the habit of looking away but you can actually find gradually that you do have the ability to look at it especially if we keep bringing it back into the present and into the body one day uh the feeling of being hopelessly stuck in this knot or in this almost invisible background attitude or something one day out of this genuine interest will arise and that's really the turning point when we fall into our black holes usually instead of asking usually we sort of rhetorically asking ourselves something like why does this keep happening to me why do i keep going there why do i keep doing this we need to realize that we it's as if we're expecting an answer from some kind of cosmic judge but if we can really understand that there is a really profound question here which is not so much why is this happening as how well how does this keep happening 
You see, there's a real turning point there between just rhetorically repeating to yourself, why me, why me, what is this, why me? And actually saying, well, darn good question. What is this exactly and why do I keep falling into this? How do I keep falling into it? So then you can really turn around and and get interested in seeing if you can catch this mechanism in action. Then it really begins to open up to really discerning mindfulness. So if you can catch what image it is that actually triggers you to go back into whatever anger or, or fear story is driving you, then you begin to catch it. So then you can begin to actually break down its sort of massive feeling of reality. Because when memory, for example, suppose you have memories that come up that are very painful and you, you keep remembering how painful something was. Instead of going right into the story about it, actually look at the memory and analyze it. Just analyze it kind of scientifically. Like, is it a visual experience, the memory? Or are you, are you remembering the feeling of something? Are you seeing it? Are you hearing the voices that people are saying things? How are you actually experiencing this memory? So you can do something like, you know, at first you might label something coming up with a sort of psychological understanding, like, oh, this is my authority issue. And I found that you know, useful for a while. I, I would keep noticing that I just didn't want to do what some people wanted me to do, and, and I started noticing when that reaction was coming up. But then you can, you can build yourself a new personality around that understanding as, oh, that's just me, I have an authority issue, tough, you know me and my authority issue, you can sort of get proud of it almost. And that's not so much the idea as to having recognized it, break it down by by noticing in more detail what it consists of in in the body and in your emotional reactions and in the memories and thoughts and projections into the future that come up with it. Um, So we need to notice when we're reinforcing these patterns by getting stuck in them and when we're actually strengthening the knots by fighting against them. It's really like a knot. That's a good analogy because when you fight against it, it's sort of like pulling it tighter and tighter and tighter. You know, there's something about applying repressive pressure to these things that makes them stronger. So when are we doing that? When are we getting sucked into just repeating them? And when are we actually got enough stability of mindfulness to be able to really open to it and explore it a little bit? So the effort is really just to notice these three different relationships. I'm not saying fix the first two and go with the third one because it's not that easy at all. You just notice when you're in each one of them. It's really a painfully slow, visceral sort of learning by seeing over and over again. But if we can really clearly discern which responses increase suffering and which begin to alleviate it, and especially the more we're able to notice and investigate the expression of it in the body, then the learning will happen. This interest and the connectedness that it fosters, this feeling of being grounded in presence, really is itself able to gradually fill the genuine needs that underlie these psychological issues. So that we can actually learn to be the loving attention that we are looking for. We can learn to give it to ourselves through mindfulness. So sometimes we can... um, after we have either worked through enough of our own personal issues or we have enough concentration to put them aside temporarily, then we may begin to discern aspects of the more impersonal process and nature of experience itself. As we learn to be very clear about the unique flavors of different sensations and states of mind, then this is the basis for deeper insights into how all experience works. For example, as you're sitting 
you may I'm talking about things like the difference between tingling and itching and pressure and heat and at, at that level of phenomenon where you're actually noticing moment by moment that, that the sensations are actually always changing and in our tradition we often teach the, pro- the practice of mental noting to try to sharpen this quality of investigation at that level so this is something that's often misunderstood and I've had quite a struggle learning to do it very much myself but the way I find it most helpful to understand it is that you're not trying to block out experience by these labels at all you're actually trying to just aim the mind at what's actually happening with the note so some people would find it helpful to note um, if you're breathing in and out you might find it helpful to note in and out and the way I think of that is that the in is just remind it's a very soft little mental reminder to direct the mind to connect to the in-breath it's like, oh yeah, this is what's happening next, or just starting, as it were. And then you forget the label and follow the actual sensations of the in-breath all the way through. And then at the end of the in-breath, you might need to re- recommit to your intention to follow the breath. So you go, okay, now we're going to follow the out-breath, so out. And then you notice how the out-breath feels. And then at the end of the out-breath, you recommit to your practice by saying, okay, now in. And then you notice the in-breath. So that's one way to look at it then it may be that as your mind settles in it becomes more interesting to notice different details like little heat and pressure and sensation and vibration it may be helpful to keep adding the labels in if it, but the point is not so much to have like it's not like you want to stick a label on it to put it in a museum case or something it's not that idea at all it's, it's a way of occupying your, your verbal mind and helping to direct the mental energy toward the actual sensation that's happening so if you can really stick with it, sometimes I, I, I usually drop the noting after a while and stick with it almost more like a computer cursor going tick, 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 tick. Those are the things that are happening. And, I, and I, the mental labels are not actually very prominent in my mind at all. And I, I got very confused for a while thinking that it was important to actually come up with the accurate label for what was going on. And I, for myself, I found that to be a dead end. It was better to just let it go and go with the cursor model. <laughs> um, so anyway, as we get more and more precise in identifying each different experience like that, we can't help but notice that things are constantly changing. And that's really where we're going with this practice, is noticing that there's one thing and another and another and another and another, and that's how we begin to break down the solidity, the solid notion of, you know, I'm sitting here breathing. Well, that's boring, right? That's only one sentence, so what? But there's a whole lot more than that going on, the more you can get into the details. So we may sometimes be able to catch the beginning or the ending of things, for example. Um, So as we notice, as we notice the beginning and ending of each thing, um, we begin to see beneath the concepts and labels. And it's a little bit like picking up a rock and seeing the swarm of life underneath it, where you really realize that your, your concept is blocking the truth of the way things are. When we start to notice the sequence of things, we may sometimes be able to discern how one thing conditions another. And this may give us some insight about the impersonal nature of things. So you can study, uh, I'm sure you've been suggested before, study the urge to move when you're sitting. And notice how that's really a back and forth conditioning between little physical sensations and the mental discontent with them and the mental intention to move and then the physical action of moving and then feedback on whether that actually feels better or not and more mental events about so you can begin to notice this mind-body interaction 
So as our discernment um, gets more and more subtle, then we become more and more sensitive to the increasingly subtle flavors of contraction and tension and clinging and restlessness and boredom. In fact, I've come to see that the activity of thought is really kind of a a contraction that pauses the flow of experience. So sometimes you can actually almost feel the thought as an energetic contraction, that things are just going along fine, then I've got to think about this for a minute, and then things are going along, it's like that. So that's interesting to me. And uh, as the mind sees clearly the difference between suffering involved in any kind of grasping like that, no matter how subtle, and the peace and joy of just letting experience flow, it actually lets go more and more. So I experience investigation, first of all, as as the refuge for the mind that always wants to know what to do and wants to know what to figure out and how to fix things. It's the third way between acting out something in terms of fixing it or repressing it in terms of ignoring it. You can, it's really, what you do is just get to know it better. And it's also one of the most portable aspects of practice. So it can be a key to integrating the formal meditation practice into the rest of our lives, to living a life dedicated to discerning the truth of the way things are and finding freedom in the midst of it, no matter what's happening. Whenever we step back from trying to figure out or change something to trying to just see it more clearly, then we can experience a moment of release we experience a moment of release as this kind of aversion or wanting turns into genuine curiosity. And as we learn to trust more and more in the mind's innate capacity to discern the truth, the joy of connecting for its own sake becomes the motive for our practice. So those are my thoughts on investigating. We have several minutes for questions or discussion. stuck on what is this as my I mean I don't say it as a mantra because that kind of blocks the actual investigation itself but you know that's that's the bottom line question to me I mean it's like what's really going on here you know there there are different synonyms for what's really happening right now you know what do I think there's a there's actually an interesting book I read uh, by a woman named Byron Katie I don't know if you've heard of her but she has four questions and it's like what am I really believing and who would I be if I didn't believe that and I can't remember. What am I getting out of believing this? That those sort of questions can be really interesting for active sort of investigation. Um, in the back of my mind, the question "What is this?" is really when I'm I'm feel I'm connected with something and I'm trying not to get into analyzing it. I'm just trying to get into feeling it more deeply. Is that I find the whole investigation thing really useful, but I get stuck sometimes. I'll find myself, instead of like, what is this? It's like, what the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's this reaction. To the, sometimes it's surprise, so it's sort yeah. of you know a pleasant reaction. Yeah. But it's a reaction where it's this like, ah, yeah. <laughs> kind of thing. And it's yeah. like, look, everything gets stopped dead in its track because there's this like, ah. Yeah. 
Well, that's, I mean, that's the case for backing up, I think, and seeing what you feel like in that state of horror at whatever you just saw, you know. I mean, that's how I was with these thoughts that I was having, you know, as, oh, my God, I didn't think that, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but, yeah. <laughs> but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not really necessarily the time to plow into the thing itself if you're feeling horror to it, you know, investigate what it feels like to be horrified. So there you are like that, you know, that's a state of tension and, you know, having jumped back and... You know, see, I mean, maybe your heart's beating faster. What's going on right now? You know, what what was that like, jumping back like that? Sometimes it's the physical sensation I'll have that I'll think, I don't know what this is. Yeah. What is this? Is this pressure? Is this heat? Yeah, Is this a bodily sensation that I've had my whole life and Uh I never, like, experienced it? Yeah. This happens all the time. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what I'm doing. Yeah, I know. I know. There's, you know, there's so much uh, there's so much in our minds and bodies that we just have never seen before. You know, and there we're I mean, we're so numb and so fixed on what we're what way we're going, you know, that you can you just, you know, it's there's an endless amount of stuff that just comes up that's really doesn't seem like us, you know. It seems like what is that, you know? And it, and then there it is and and uh I don't know. I don't I don't, I don't think there's an answer in, that's going to come to you verbally about what it is or it it does but you know it doesn't it isn't the answer it's just more verbal experience mm-hmm. and and so somehow the answer is that it is what it is and you know that uh, learning the flavor of it i mean becoming opening up to the flavor of whatever's happening in terms of the actual feeling and then learning you know looking at your reactions to them and all that's just more flavor and i don't know I don't know any better answer than that because there certainly isn't any any uh, answer in terms of this is the right response to that or this is the wrong response or you should or shouldn't be thinking this or having that experience or it should feel like this or that or it means this in words you know there really isn't there isn't anything like that there's plenty of thinking there's something like that it can entertain you for years but <laughs> I don't think there's an answer that way yeah. So, how often is investigation a um, cognitive, sort of verbal to yourself experience versus a non-verbal um, experiential thing? Well, for me, about three to one. But I mean, I think <laughs> I don't know. I think it's changing. I mean, I'm getting less fascinated by the verbal, less fascinated by you know all my explanations of everything and more interested in just feeling what's going on. But For me, the investigation has such a strong connotation of you know, a verbal explanation. Yeah. Of right, it does. Of right, it does. As opposed to feeling it. Yeah. And you know, it's supposed to just like experience the feeling as opposed to describing the feeling. Yeah. Well, for me, the most, I mean, the most transformative moments of investigation are when I don't feel that I'm actually doing anything other than noticing a certain sequence of cause and effect like those examples I gave where I noticed that what my mother said caused me to contract or something like that so those are the really transformative moments for me the real aha moments is seeing a pattern at a different level of detail and that sort of somehow that sort of disarming its ability to jerk me around from then on 
So I don't know. I mean, it's cognitive. It was just a feeling of it as it happened, but then I immediately went into thinking about it and thought, oh, great, now I understand this. And so that sort of, I mean, I think that sort of reinforced it. So I'm not saying that's not useful because that reinforced what I really understood. And then I think the next, that probably reinforced the ability to be on the lookout for it next time and things like that. So to me, they're just totally intertwined. Um, I'm always concerned about getting diverted by you know, some narrative about or fantasy about why something is the way it is. Yeah. Um, do, do you have any tricks or ways to avoid going down <laughs> those rabbit holes? <laughs> I don't know. I've been way deep in some such rabbit holes. Way, way deep in some such rabbit holes. And uh, I mean, you know, it's like if you could just tell your children, you know, how to be good grown-ups that would save them a lot of pain in adolescence and I'm not sure there's any answer but to follow the rabbit holes that you can't help following all the while telling yourself this is not the way <laughs> I don't know I mean I don't I don't think I, I guess for me that's not entirely the whole story because I really feel like for me a coherent set of beliefs and understanding about what I'm doing is actually a prerequisite for relaxing and trusting the process it really is. So, I mean, I, I, I can't honestly say that I haven't put in a whole lot of effort in trying to put together a coherent model. And so does the Buddha. I mean, that's what the whole Dharma is, is the Buddha's model of what we're doing here. And there are a lot of alternative models around these days. And so, you know, I, I think we really need, in this intellectual age we live in, that most of us probably really need to have some kind of story about why we're doing this. And so I, it's, that's right view, I guess. You know, that's the first of the Eightfold Path, is putting together something that you understand well enough that you actually have convinced yourself that this is trustworthy and worth going on. And it's a constant back and forth. You know, the more you discover, you have to integrate it into your model of what's going on and then press forward into the unknown and then integrate that and then press forward. And, you know, ultimately, I guess, maybe one is comfortable with more and more unknown and less and less reliance on your model. But... I don't know, I'm not there yet, so I'm still model building and exploring in alternate moments. Yeah. Could you repeat the first two words that you started out with? Ehipasiko and Opanaiko. Ehipasiko means Ehipasiko means come and see for yourself. There's a little chant that the Dharma has these qualities, and I actually forget the other two, but Ehipasiko means come and see for yourself, and Opanaiko means, well, I used to hear it described as onward leading, but more recently the translations that I've seen is inward leading. So I suppose that depends on which side of the mirror you're looking at, sort of whether it's onward or inward, but it, it has a, a, a quality of taking you deeper, let's put it that way. By itself, it sort of takes you deeper. So as you practice it, that's the way I understand it anyway. It leads you deeper by itself. Yeah. Oh, uh, earlier in your talk, you talked about uh, mindfulness, black holes. Is that something that it takes away your mindfulness? Or are you 
Well, no, I'm. For me, it takes away my in, my ability for my intention to be mindful to function. <laughs> so I, I mean, I, mean, I think I'm being very mindful, and next thing I know, I'm at the refrigerator, and how did I get there? You know. So and it just seems to be. It's like there's a kind of a, you know, electric fence of anti mindfulness around the refrigerator. I don't know. It's just, it's just uh, it doesn't go there for some reason, and I don't understand it. All I'm saying is that there are such things in my experience, and that's mine. So there are a few more. But anyway, I don't know any more about what it is. That's what I mean. <laughs> That's a good question. Um, I think I think it's what I'm trying to do is in my own practice is stay stay in the positive room enough so that I can go into the negative room a little ways, but not lose my lifeline back to the positive room. If that makes any sense, I mean it's like it's like find yourself a positive place some if if you can get relaxed by breathing or by grounding yourself or by what reading a book watching tv whatever relaxes you i mean really you know if you're really looking at some very heavy negative stuff then whatever you know you need to find a place in your life that is very safe and relaxing and then you know you can go there and then you know you can be there as long as you need to be there and you can you know start opening up to the negative stuff while keeping you need to keep almost to you need to keep some one foot in the positive room all the time. If I'm sort of speaking metaphorically here, but if you're really dealing with a lot of very difficult stuff, try to keep keep the ability to get back to the positive. So I would keep testing your ability to go back to something that's peaceful, and so that you're not just getting sucked into the negative as 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 much as you can. You know, um, this is this is what I've heard as of the instruction for how to deal with this, and what I'm trying to do myself in my own work. So. You know, if you have really terrible, painful memories or a situation that just makes you furious and you know that you tend to, let's say you tend to just go ballistic in a certain situation and you know that, and yet you, you really want to work with that, you don't want to just jump right into a situation that's totally going to trigger that whole reaction. So you might want to calm down through better breathing meditation or whatever works for you. And then just, you know, just play with the edge of it. You know, it's like the taming the wildcat thing or like just, just play with the edge of it. And see if you see how far in it you can get while you can still come back to a place of composure in your mind, and then see if you can get a little farther. And by see if you can get, I don't really mean plow in there. I mean just sort of open up to it. You know, maybe if you're, I'm not sure what kind of situation we might be talking about, but if you can think of people who make you angry or some thought about them comes you up, comes up to you or something, but just staying grounded. So you don't want to try to, you know force yourself to stay in the positive state all the time because that's really repressing the difficulties. And if you repress the difficulties, they're not, you're not going to get away from them, really. They're going to express themselves in ways that you're not aware of. So you want to um, just be very gradual with going into the difficult areas and, and 
I, if you if you don't feel that you have a real positive home base right now, I'd really concentrate on the breathing and the relaxing aspects of this practice and see if you can build yourself up a positive home base from which you can explore some of the darker parts that we all have. Does that answer your question? Well, should we sit for one minute? (laughs) Maybe two?